0: go ahead and turn with me to exodus chapter one in your bibles exodus chapter one we're going to be starting a new sermon series this week in the book of exodus and lord willing just before summer we will conclude with israel being delivered through the red sea Uh, so why are we going to spend the next few months studying the book of exodus It's because Exodus is one of the most foundational books for understanding the entire Bible. Uh, The word Exodus simply means exit or departure. So, in this case, it's referring to Israel's exit or departure, the people of Israel, from their slavery in the land of Egypt. Uh, Israel's exodus from Egypt, the way the Bible portrays it, the way it is understood, is that it is the nation's salvation event. They are redeemed by God from slavery. They are called to be his people. And throughout Israel's history, the, the people of God, Israel, are called to remember that God has redeemed them from their slavery in Egypt and called them to be his people. It is the, the basis for their relationship with them. They go from serving Egypt, God redeems them so that they might serve the Lord instead. Now, this does not mean that every single individual in Israel was saved, But it is a corporate salvation experience for the nation. That is the way the Bible understands it. And so ultimately, Israel's exodus from their slavery in Egypt serves as the pattern or the the symbol, the example of the Christian's salvation from their own slavery to sin. The the exodus from Egypt was a, a real historical event, but God intended it, and the biblical authors understand it, to be a a foreshadowing or a a type, a picture of the salvation that God would accomplish in Jesus Christ for his people. Therefore, to understand Exodus better, to understand the Exodus story better, is to better understand your own salvation if you are a Christian. It is to more fully understand Jesus' sacrifice on the cross and, and what it accomplished. It is to more fully understand who we, the church, are as the people of God and our own call to holiness, our own call to be his people. Exodus is foundational. And Exodus is not just a picture of our redemption. As as one author put it, uh, uh, God's commitment to make himself known to the nations is the central theological concern of Exodus. Therefore, in our journey over the next few months through at least a portion of the book of Exodus, my prayer is that you come to know God more as God makes himself known through this event that you will come to know him more, that you would grow to love him more, that if you're a Christian, you will grow in appreciation for your own salvation and that God has rescued you from your slavery to sin, and that all of that might lead you to pursue holiness and make God known to others. And so with that in mind, please follow along as I read Exodus chapter 1 for us. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob. Each came with his family, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. The total number of Jacob's descendants was 70. Joseph was already in Egypt. Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation eventually died, But the Israelites were fruitful, increased rapidly, multiplied, and became extremely numerous so that the land was filled with them. A new king who did not know about Joseph came to power in Egypt. He said to his people, look, the Israelite people are more numerous and powerful than we are. Come, let's deal shrewdly with them. Otherwise, they will multiply further, and when war breaks out, they will join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So the Egyptians assigned taskmasters over the Israelites to oppress them with forced labor. They built Python and Ramses, as supply cities for Pharaoh. But the more they oppressed them, the more they multiplied and spread so that the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites. They worked the Israelites ruthlessly and made their lives bitter with difficult labor in brick and mortar and in all kinds of fieldwork. They ruthlessly imposed all this work on them. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, the first, whose name was Shipra, and the second, whose name was Pua. When you help the Hebrew women give birth, observe them as they deliver. If the child is a, is a son, kill him. But if it's a daughter, she may live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt had told them. They let the boys live. So the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, Why have you done this and let the boys live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, The Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife can get to them. So God was good to the midwives, and the people multiplied and became very numerous. Since the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Pharaoh then commanded all his people, you must throw every son born to the Hebrews into the Nile, but let every daughter live. Please pray with me. Father, we do ask that uh, as we come and consider this text, that you would make yourself known to us by your Spirit. And Father, that you would help me by your Spirit to speak clearly, to speak what is true. And Father, that you might be glorified in all. And Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I, I don't know about you, but I find it amazing that after it rains here in Fujera once or twice, that some green shows up on the mountains. Uh, Small plants and and grass shoot up when just a little rain arrives. Now, most of the year, the mountains just look like a pile of rocks and dirt and sand. It's hard ground. There's nothing there. It spends months without getting any water. It spends months getting scorched by the the hot, hot sun. And yet there is, is life sitting there underground, just ready to spring up with a little water. Now you would think that the the lack of water, this this hot and and scorching sun would have killed anything that might grow. But it doesn't. And just as the the sun and the the dry climate here in the UAE fails in their attempts to destroy any life that might be sitting there underground, we see in Exodus chapter one that despite the best efforts of Pharaoh to destroy the people of Israel, or at least significantly slow the growth of the people of Israel. Well, the people do not just survive, they thrive. It would be as if the, the mountains of Fujera were green all the time, even without rain and even in the midst of the hot, hot sun. And so this first chapter of the book of Exodus stands as a monument to God's faithfulness and his sovereign control over all things. And so, the, the main idea of this first chapter from Exodus is that God is faithful to fulfill his promises and that his plans cannot be stopped. God is faithful to fulfill his promises and his plans cannot be stopped. I have three points for you to consider for today's sermon. The first is a, a family history, a family history. Second is a history of oppression. And the third is a history of faithfulness. Uh, So first, a, a family history. As we come to Exodus 1, what you do not see in your English translations of the Bible is that in Hebrew, which is the language in which Exodus was written, the book actually begins with the word, and. It starts, and these are the names of the sons of Israel. Or that would be the literal English translation. I don't think I could pronounce what it actually says. But... Why does the book start that way? Well, it's because Moses, the author of the book of Exodus, understood that Exodus is a continuation of the story, and it is a continuation of the history that began in the book of Genesis. So as we begin our study through Exodus, we do need to go back to Genesis to understand something of the history behind Exodus. So the book of Exodus opens by giving you a family tree. It gives the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt. Israel is the name that God gave to Jacob. So Jacob, Israel, same person. Uh, That is why the Israelites are called Israelites, because Jacob was named Israel. Israelites descended from him. Jacob is the grandson of Abraham, and he is the father of Joseph. He is one of the, the fathers of the Hebrew people, Jacob. So I don't have time to give you the full history of Jacob and his family, but I would encourage you, as you have time over the next week or two, to go read Genesis 37 through 50, which tells the story of Joseph. It tells the full story of how Jacob and his family come to Egypt. And I would actually go encourage you to read all of Genesis. It will be helpful to you as we do our study through Exodus. But I want to give a few very short details of how Jacob and his family came to Egypt. And so Joseph was the second youngest of the 12 sons of Jacob. And when he was 17, Joseph was sold by his brothers into slavery in Egypt. Now, that's pretty bad. But after Joseph arrived in Egypt, things went from bad to worse. He gets thrown into prison in Egypt after he is falsely accused of wrongdoing. So he is innocent, and yet he is thrown in prison, He spends several years in prison, but during that time, as you read through Genesis, amazingly, Joseph remained faithful to the Lord, and it's clear in the Bible that the Lord was with Joseph in Egypt. Well, miraculously, Joseph is eventually called out of prison by Pharaoh because God has empowered Joseph to interpret dreams, and Pharaoh, the ruler of Egypt, has a series of dreams that that trouble him. Joseph comes and by God's power interprets these dreams of Pharaoh and tells Pharaoh that his dreams mean that a very severe famine is coming to Egypt. It's going to come in seven years time, but it's going to be bad and it's going to last seven years. And so Joseph gives advice to Pharaoh after he interprets his dream and tells him that he should spend the next seven years until that famine shows up storing up food in Egypt so that the land might survive and the people might survive when the famine comes. Well, Pharaoh is so pleased with Joseph's recommendation that he makes Joseph the second in command of all of Egypt and gives Joseph the job of preparing the land of Egypt for the famine. So in the the blink of an eye, Joseph goes from being a slave in prison to the most honored and important man in all of Egypt other than Pharaoh himself. It's an amazing story of God's providence at work, of his care for Joseph and his care for his people. So when the famine does come, well, the the famine is not just bad in Egypt, it's it's bad in all the surrounding area as well. So Jacob sends his remaining sons to Egypt to buy food because Egypt is the only one with any food. The, The famine is bad in the land of Canaan as well, where they live. Well... Providentially, Joseph is present when his brothers arrive to buy food, and he recognizes them. They're the same brothers that sold him into slavery, but Joseph is, is merciful to them. He's gracious. He forgives them, though he has the power to do whatever he wants with them. He forgives them, and so Joseph's family is—when uh, when Pharaoh learns that uh, Joseph's family has come to Egypt— Uh, They are invited by Pharaoh to come live in the land of Egypt with Joseph and essentially ride out the famine, to come and prosper. They're given some of the best land by Pharaoh in all of Egypt. And so what do they do? Jacob and his sons and their families, as we read in the first chapter of Exodus, they come to Egypt. So that is the the very short story of what leads Jacob and his sons and their families to Egypt. That's like 14 chapters of the Bible and like 14 sentences. So go read Genesis 37 through 50. It will help fill in some of the details. But before we move on from that story, I want to read for you what Joseph tells his brothers when he first reveals his identity to them. So they come to buy food. They do not recognize Joseph, but Joseph recognizes them. And when he chooses to reveal himself to his brothers, this is what he tells them. And now don't be grieved or angry with yourselves for selling me here, because God sent me ahead of you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there will be five more years without plowing or harvesting. God sent me ahead of you to establish you as a remnant within the land and to keep you alive by a great deliverance. Therefore, it was not you who sent me here, but God. Brothers and sisters, just as as, as Bijou got up here and said that he knows that his cancer is God's will. Joseph recognized God's hand at work in his suffering and then in the prosperity that came after that. He recognized that God had sent him so that his family the people of Israel, might be saved in the midst of the famine. And not just them, but many others as well. The story of Joseph's life is a story of God sovereignly working behind the scenes to protect and to provide for his people. It's a story of God sovereignly working through Joseph's suffering and working through his brother's sin to sell him into slavery But God working through those things to accomplish his purposes. But there's something else going on in these first few verses of Exodus. And it's another example of God sovereignly at work. Uh, So the story of of Exodus, the the book of Exodus, kind of picks up about three to four hundred years after Joseph arrived in Egypt. So eventually, as we read in verse 6, Jacob and all his sons and their families died, but their descendants flourish. Uh, The descendants of Jacob and all his sons, they flourish. As we read in verse 7, they were fruitful, increased rapidly, multiplied, and became extremely numerous so that the land was filled with them. Now, friends, what you need to see here is this this is not just a description of what happened. It is a description of what happened. But if you notice through Exodus, this language that is here in verse seven, it appears like four or five different times in chapter one. What is going on is that Moses is pointing you backwards to God's promise to Abraham, who is Jacob's grandfather. Uh, Again, to go back to Genesis, when God first revealed himself to Abraham, he promised Abraham that he would make him a great nation, that he would bless them. And that specifically, he specifically promised Abraham that his offspring or his descendants would be more numerous than the stars in the sky and more numerous than the sand on the seashore. Look at Genesis 15, look at Genesis 22. So why does Moses point out to us that the Israelites were fruitful and they multiplied and that they increased greatly? Because it demonstrates that God was at work fulfilling his promise to Abraham. In the midst of Egypt, a foreign land, God was blessing Abraham's descendants and making them more numerous than the stars in the sky and making them more numerous than the sand on the seashore. God had not forgotten his people. But God also promised something else to Abraham. Again, in Genesis chapter 15, verse 13, God says this to Abraham. Know this for certain. Your offspring will be resident aliens for 400 years in a land that does not belong to them. In other words, Egypt, and they will be enslaved and oppressed. However, I will judge the nation they serve, and afterward they will go out with many possessions. God had promised long ago at Abraham that exactly what was happening, exactly what we read about in chapter 1 of Exodus, would happen to Abraham's descendants. God promised that his descendants would be enslaved in Egypt, but he also promised that he would rescue them. So as the people of Israel looked around and saw God being faithful to multiply them in the midst of this oppression that they were experiencing, as they saw him faithfully fulfill that promise, well, it should have encouraged them that God would surely bring them out of the land of Egypt. God was fulfilling that promise to Abraham. He would surely fulfill the other promise to Abraham that he would bring them out. And brothers and sisters, God is faithful to fulfill all of his promises. So in these, these first few verses of Exodus chapter 1, Moses is not just calling to mind the history of the people of Israel. He's not just giving you a, a family tree, though he is doing that. He's calling to mind the promises that God had made to his people. And he's making it clear that God had not forgotten his promises, but that God was at work fulfilling those promises. God was at work redeeming his people. Now, this was understandably probably difficult for the people of Israel to see because of the oppression that they suffered in the land of Egypt. It brings us to the the second point of the sermon, a history of oppression. They have a family history, the, the history of the people of Israel, and now a history of oppression, what happened to them in Egypt So we read in Exodus chapter 1 that long after Joseph's death, a new king arose in Egypt. In other words, a new pharaoh now, new pharaoh on the throne. Uh, This new pharaoh did not know Joseph's contributions to Egypt. He did not know how Joseph had helped save Egypt from the severe famine so many years ago. And so he looks out at the people of Israel, not in, in gratitude or not with goodwill, But he sees this people who have grown so numerous, they are multiplying so rapidly, that he becomes worried that the Israelites might choose to rebel. They might side with some other enemies of Egypt, and like, oh, okay, we're not going to be able to stand against them. There's too many of them. They've grown so large that this new Pharaoh sees the people of Israel as a threat. Now, so his solution to the problem is to enslave them. He's going to put them into slavery. So as we see in verse 11, he assigned taskmasters over the Israelites to oppress them with forced labor. Verses 13 and 14 says that the Egyptians worked the Israelites ruthlessly and made their lives bitter with difficult labor. Uh, The people of God suffered. They were oppressed. They were enslaved. But the most important thing for you to notice about these verses is The most important thing to see about the suffering inflicted by Pharaoh on the Israelites is that despite his best efforts, despite oppressing and working the Israelites ruthlessly, despite enslaving the Israelites, Pharaoh could not stop the plans and Pharaoh could not stop the purposes of God. And look specifically in the text at what Pharaoh wanted to stop. He wanted to stop the people from multiplying. He was fearful of their growth. Verse 10, he says, come, let's deal shrewdly with them. Otherwise, they will multiply further. Although he did not realize it, Pharaoh was trying to prevent God from fulfilling his promise to Abraham. He was trying to stop God's purposes and God's plans. But just like the sun and the heat cannot kill the seeds that lie dormant under the ground, Pharaoh could not wipe out the people of God. Not only could he not wipe out the people of God, he couldn't even stop them from growing. And this is what Moses wants you to see. Throughout the book of Exodus, Pharaoh, whether it is this Pharaoh or the future Pharaoh that will actually be on the throne when the people are delivered uh, through the plagues, Pharaoh will continue to try and stop God's purposes and plans. But what you should know is that throughout Exodus, God demonstrates his surpassing greatness, his surpassing glory, and his surpassing power. God makes it known that he is the one true God who is more powerful than Pharaoh, who was probably the most powerful ruler in the world at that time. And he is greater than all the false gods of Egypt. We already see this truth at work in these verses, and notice what happens in verse twelve. When Pharaoh tries to stop the Israelites from multiplying by oppressing them, this is what we this is what Moses records. But the more they oppressed them, the more they multiplied and spread, so that the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites. Pharaoh could not stop God's plan. He could not stop God from fulfilling his purposes no matter how hard he tried. Brothers and sisters, what, what can you learn from this? Now, simply put, that God is in control and his plans cannot be stopped. Now, God is always at work and he will always accomplish his purposes. Now, look, he may be at work and he is often at work in ways that we cannot see. And in ways that we cannot and do not understand. I mean, notice here that Israel is given no reason for their suffering, even when God promised Abraham that his people would be enslaved and oppressed in Egypt, and God gives no reason for why he is going to do this. And God does not tell them the reason for their suffering or their difficulty. We see this often in the Bible when it comes to suffering. Just take the story of Job. If you go read through Job, Job suffers horrifically. And God does not tell Job the reason that he permits that suffering to come to Job's life. Now, friends, there are many of you who may be sitting here who are facing difficult circumstances in your life. You may have family members who are facing difficult circumstances in their life. You may face difficult circumstances in your future. And so often when that happens, when these difficult events come up, maybe even just a natural disaster that strikes your home country, we want to know why. God, why would you allow this to happen? God, why would you allow Bijou to get cancer? In the midst of these difficulties, you might even be tempted to think that God has forgotten you. God is ignoring you that he does not see, that he does not know, that he does not understand, that he does not love. But God is not forgotten. In his great wisdom, God often chooses to work through the suffering of his people. He does not always tell you the reason why, but, but he calls you to, to trust him. In Acts chapter 8... In Acts chapter 8, is the early church is being established, so this is after the death and resurrection of Jesus, after Jesus has ascended back into heaven, well, we find that severe persecution comes to the church in Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem is like the headquarters of the early church. Severe persecution comes to the believers and the church that is there. But God used the suffering and persecution of his people in Jerusalem to spread the gospel to the nations. Many Christians had to to flee Jerusalem because of the persecution that came, but Acts tells us that, that that simply led those fleeing Christians, those who had to get out of Jerusalem because of their suffering and persecution, it led them to take the gospel to other cities and other regions. God used it to grow his church. God used it so that others would come to know who he is. God used persecution to spread the gospel to other places and to make his name known. On Exodus, God also worked through the suffering of his people to make his name known. Because he's about to deliver them through powerful signs and wonders that makes clear that he is greater than Pharaoh, he is greater than the gods of Egypt, he is greater than all nations, that he is God alone. Brothers and sisters, God is often at work in ways that you cannot see but you can be sure that his plans cannot be stopped. And the fact that God's plans cannot be stopped means that you can trust the promises of God. I I don't know about you, but it always bothers me or frustrates me in movies when there's like the main characters are facing some moment of great peril. They're in danger, something threatening is there, and they turn to one another, and one of them says something like this, I promise I will not let anything happen to you. Or, I promise that nothing will happen to me. I will come back to you. Well, how do they know? Like, they have no idea whether they can keep the promise. I mean, it's a movie, so it always works out. But if that's real life, like that's a ridiculous promise to make. These people have no idea whether they can protect this person or whether they can come back to this person. But God's promises are not like that. And that is because he is in control of those circumstances. God is in control of all things. And so his plans and his purposes cannot be stopped. And brothers and sisters, that means you can count on the promises of God. You can trust them. They are secure. And God gives you a number of promises in his word that are intended to build your faith, to help you endure, to persevere. Just consider some of these promises. God promises the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. I trust that is a great encouragement to the believers in Algeria and the believers in Afghanistan enduring intense persecution for their faith. Paul writes in Romans eight thirty-eight and 39, For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Brothers and sisters, God promises that his love for you is secure, that your salvation is secure. God promises that he will never leave you or forsake you. He promises, even as we sang about this morning, that he will come again. He promises that he is keeping an inheritance in heaven for you that is imperishable and unfading. So, brothers and sisters, when you are struggling with certain circumstances in your life, when you are asking that question, why, when you are tempted to doubt or to think that God has forgotten you, go spend some time meditating on the promises of God in Scripture. Go read through Exodus. These promises, these stories are given for your benefit. Remind yourself that God is in control of all things and that nothing can stop his plans. He does not promise comfort. He does not promise ease. He does not promise health or wealth in this life, but he does promise eternal good for all that place their faith in Jesus Christ. He He promises his presence. Brothers and sisters, you can count on the promises of God. So what should our response be to the promises of God? What should our our response be to the God who is in control of all things? The answer is faith. The answer is is trust and obedience. And that takes us to the, the final point of the sermon, a history of faithfulness, as we see a few members of the nation of Israel act as we are to act in response to the promises of God. Well, when Pharaoh realized that slavery did not stop the people of Israel from growing, when that did not stop God's plans, Pharaoh just increased his oppression of God's people. Look at verse 15. Pharaoh ordered all the Hebrew midwives, so Shipra and Pua were probably leaders of the midwives, like representatives of all the Hebrew midwives. Either that or they were amazing and somehow were midwives for like all two million of the Israelites at once. Um, But he ordered them to kill all the male babies. So no male babies, no multiplication. Uh, Pharaoh knew his biology. And so that is the thinking of Pharaoh here. Slavery did not work, so let's try murder instead. Uh, However, the, the midwives do not comply with Pharaoh's command. Verse 17 says the midwives did not do as the king of Egypt had told them. They let the boys live. The text said that these midwives feared the Lord. They feared the Lord, and so they disobeyed Pharaoh. They had a greater reverence and respect for God than Pharaoh. I mean, just stop for a minute and like, think of the possible consequences of their disobedience. They are disobeying the ruler of the land in which they are. They're probably the most powerful ruler in the earth at that time, and yet they rightly knew that God, not Pharaoh, was in control of all things. God, not Pharaoh, held their eternal destiny in their hands. And so they rightly chose to obey God rather than obey man. That is what it looks like. That is what it looks like to fear God rather than fear man. And brothers and sisters, I think we often fear earthly consequences. We fear what others might, might do to us. We fear what others might even just think of us. And that tempts us to, to disobey God and choose to please people instead. There's an immediate comfort or gratification in pleasing people who are standing right in front of us rather than the God who is in control of all things. God calls you to trust him and obey him, to fear him. But God has also given you abundant evidence that he is the God who is in control of all things. And he has made it absolutely clear that you can trust him and that you can obey him. Well, Pharaoh realizes that this plan isn't working, so he calls the midwives back when he learns that the male babies are not being killed and asks them, Why have you not done what I have commanded you to do? Well, what do the midwives do in response? They lie to Pharaoh. They deceive Pharaoh. They say that the Israelites' babies come too fast for them, evidently making their profession completely useless. Well, surprisingly, God blesses the midwives in response. Verse 21 says, Because they feared him and did not do what Pharaoh asked, God blessed them with families of their own.
1: They recognized
0: that to obey Pharaoh and do this thing would be to disobey God, and they made the right decision. Now, look, God God commands Christians not to lie. Pretty clear in the scripture, we are called to truthfulness as Christians. But we cannot overlook the fact that the Bible praises the midwives for their action here. It is clear that they made the right decision in their response to Pharaoh. Now, we don't have time to really go into the depths of this. If you have questions about this, please come ask me afterwards. Let me just say this. 99.99% of the time, the right decision for Christians is to tell the truth, the complete truth, and nothing but the truth. But there are perhaps situations in which a true fear of God would lead someone who is truly fearing the Lord to make a different decision. I trust the example of the midwives gave courage and confidence to those faithful Christians who hid Jews from Nazi soldiers during World War II and lied when they were asked that they have anyone in their home. Now, Now let me emphasize that I think you are very unlikely to ever face a similar situation. So the right response is to praise the midwives for their fear of the Lord and for you to tell the truth. Again, I'm happy to talk with you more if you've got questions about that after the service. But what I really want you to see is that God used these courageous midwives for the good of his people. Look at verse 20. So God was good to the midwives. And the people multiplied and became very numerous. Despite the, the best efforts of Pharaoh, God's plans could not be stopped. Increased oppression, the people kept multiplying. God used the faithfulness of these midwives to accomplish his purposes. Now, now friends, as we even thought about, I think, last week, God does not use need you and he does not need me to accomplish his purposes. But he chooses to use your small acts of faithfulness, your small acts of courage, your small acts of obedience, those times when you choose to fear the Lord to accomplish his purposes. In the same way that he used these midwives' faithfulness and fear of the Lord to prosper and protect his people. Well, if you were reading chapter one of Exodus for the first time, you would probably be left with something of a question as you reach the end. Pharaoh's oppression of Israel to this point has not been successful in stopping God's plans. The more he tries, the more they grow. His request to the midwives has not worked, but we read in verse 22, the last verse of the chapter, that Pharaoh then commanded all his people, you must throw every son born to the Hebrews into the Nile, but let every daughter live. So Pharaoh has now turned and enlisted the entire nation of Israel to murder male Israelite babies. So slavery didn't work. Getting the midwives to do the job didn't work. All right, everybody in Egypt, your job is to throw babies into the Nile. That has got to work. So if this is your first time reading Exodus, you would probably be wondering, what is going to happen? Will God's people be wiped out? Will Pharaoh be successful? In some sense, that's what we're going to be studying over the next several weeks. But I'll go ahead and spoil the end of the story for those of you who may be wondering. God wins. Pharaoh is unable to stand in the way of God. God accomplishes his plans and his purposes. He delivers his people. He receives all glory and honor. Well, as we close the sermon, I want to to recall your mind to something I said at the the beginning of the sermon as I was introducing the the book of Exodus, that Exodus is the pattern of our own salvation. Consider many years later, there would be another king who would try to stop God's plans. I just recall those verses that Ocean read to us from Matthew chapter 2 just a few moments ago. Shortly following the birth of Jesus, King Herod ordered all the male children in Bethlehem, age two and under, to be killed. He wanted to kill Jesus, this promised king of the Jews. He didn't really understand the prophecies. He just sees Jesus as a threat to his rule in the same way that Pharaoh saw the Israelites as a threat to the people of Egypt and his rule. So he orders all the male babies in Bethlehem to be killed. Unsurprisingly, if you know Exodus, this plan does not work. God's plans cannot be stopped. God warns Jesus' family in a dream to flee to Egypt to escape from Herod. And Just like God took Jacob and his sons to Egypt to preserve their life at the beginning of that famine, God took Jesus to Egypt to preserve his life. And like God would call the nation of Israel out of Egypt, as we will be reading about for the next few months, and God would do the same thing with Jesus, call his son, Jesus, out of Egypt. But this time he would do it so that Jesus could save God's people. And just like God was at work in Israel's suffering, God was at work through the suffering of Jesus Christ. It was by Jesus' suffering and death that God had always planned to save his people. And Jesus faced quite a lot of opposition during his time on earth. It was not just Herod trying to, to murder Jesus There was Judas, there were the the Pharisees who consistently tried to stop God's plans. They worked hard to stop Jesus. There were times that they tried to kill Jesus. And when Jesus died on the cross, it appeared to many that God's plan of redemption had been stopped. It looked as if Jesus had been defeated. Some of his disciples openly wondered whether he was really the Messiah. We thought this was the Messiah, and yet he died. Maybe they felt forgotten, discouraged like the people of Israel. But we know Jesus' death was not the end of the story. Just when it looked like God's plans had been stopped, what happened? God raised Jesus from the dead, defeating sin and death in the process so that anyone who believes in Jesus can find eternal life. Friends, God's plans and his purposes cannot be stopped. Friends, if you are here and not a Christian, uh, I hope just this first chapter of Exodus, it's going to get reinforced over and over and over again if you're here through the study of Exodus. If you're here and not a Christian, I hope you see the futility of resisting God. God is in control of all things. He accomplishes his plans. His purposes cannot be stopped. God promises in his word, those promises that are sure, he promises that one day he will return To judge, the living, and the dead. He calls you to submit to him now. Submit to him now by repenting of your sins and placing your faith in Jesus Christ who came to this earth, who suffered willingly, who endured oppression willingly, even to the point of death on a cross. All that you might be saved. For those of you who are Christians, I I hope that this first chapter of Exodus leads you to trust that God is at work, even in ways that you cannot see and ways that you cannot understand. And no matter what you might be enduring now, you see that God's plans and purposes cannot be stopped. And that leads you to a great trust and and a deep and abiding faith in him. Because God is faithful to fulfill his promises and God's plans cannot be stopped. Let's pray. Father, we...